I appreciate Dr. Grudy's call to take a deeper look at the human face of immigration. I believe his call is consistent with God's mandate to Israel to remember the aliens in their midst, for they themselves were aliens in Egypt. I believe his call is consistent with Luther's own call for the church to see the poor Christ child in the face of our poor neighbor today. At a time when immigration debates focus almost exclusively on political, economic, and legal issues, and it is easy to lose sight of the migrant, Dr. Grudy's work is indeed refreshing and most welcome. Please join me also in welcoming Dr. Daniel Grudy. Well, it's wonderful to be here with you today, and thank you especially for inviting me to the prayer service this morning. I think the readings were very appropriate, and to the whole reading from the Acts of the Apostles about being one of heart and mind, I think is at the core of what our reflections are about today, and trying to think of what it means to be in union with God as we reflect on the situation of the immigrant today. I was very struck by the name of this seminary, Concordia, and I know that as is it has geographical connections. It also has deeply spiritual connections as well. And I can remember when I was first in theology studies, just coming to deepen that whole notion of what Concordia is. It's really to really feel with the heart, to feel with the heart of others, to feel with the heart of Christ as we do our theological reflections. So it's great to be here, and it's wonderful to be here at a Lutheran seminary. And I think that this whole notion, one of the things that I particularly draw from Luther as a Catholic priest, is this whole notion of the gratuity of God and this whole sense of that there's nothing that, in the end, that we can claim fully as our own, but we receive all as a gift. And I think this has to be the foundation of our theological reflection because so often in this immigration debate, which is complex and is difficult, we keep seeing like who belongs, who doesn't belong, what rights do they have, what rights don't they have. But unless we get the piece of gratuity right, and unless we get the human face of the migrant right, we're not going to find, in my opinion, the right way. So I'd like to share with you a few reflections from my own experience and from my own tradition about migrants and about working with migrants. And so maybe just as a starter, I could tell you about my own background in history. And I first started working in Latin America in 1981, and I was an exchange student in Uruguay and Argentina. And I was very struck by the hospitality, the openness, and sort of the, the depth and the dimensions of, of Latin America. And so it left, planted a seed in me at that time to want to go back and live in Latin America and work among Hispanics. So I lived in Chile and then Peru. But eventually, when I went into the seminary, I started to work with immigrants in this country and particularly in Mexico. So I started to focus more and more among work and people in central Mexico and those who are immigrants to the US. And one of the core pieces of my interest in working with over time and then later studying them in more detail, studying their, their, their lives in more detail, was trying to understand their spirituality. 
and to try and to reflect a little more about what were the spiritual contours of their lives. And the more I got into the spirituality of the migrants, the more it got me into the issue of immigration. So spirituality and immigration at first were very disjointed dimensions of my study, but eventually they came together and to me are deeply rooted in our tradition about who we are as a people of God. And as Leo read the part from Deuteronomy in the beginning, this whole notion of we, uh, that, that, that in the, the mandate to Israel to remember the widow, the orphan, and the alien, or even some translations, the immigrant, in that sense, uh, is very striking because it's at the heart of Israel's creed. And as we know, as we study the scriptures, if Israel was reminded to remember the widow, the poor, and the immigrant, it's probably because they were forgetting the widow, the poor, and the immigrant. And so there is this tendency, this historical amnesia, to forget where we come from and to forget that in the end we are all immigrant people. And so I'm going to reflect a little more in detail about that, but what I'd like to do is just frame it according to one story. And the story happened when I was first assigned to work in a parish of Hispanic immigrants. Now, I was brand spanking new in this parish. I was a deacon at the time and on my way to ordination. And I remember that I got this call at 5 o'clock in the morning. Everyone else was gone, so suddenly it, it, it was my turn to, to get up and answer the phone. And as soon as you get a call at that hour, as you know, you, you think the worst. Someone has died, you're being called down to the hospital or something. So I answer the phone, and it's Margarita Rubalcaba on the phone. And she is the oldest daughter of 14 kids. And they had just come over to the United States from Mexico, and they had been in this country for about a month. Now, Margarita was working at a local car manufacturing plant on the other side of town. And as I picked up the phone, my bathrobe, she says, Danielle, she says, listen. She says, I tried to get the car started this morning, but it wouldn't work. She says, and I tried to connect the cables between the cars, but the cables melted. She says, I don't know what to do. She says, and if I miss work today, she says, I'm probably going to get fired. She says, can you help? So I said, Margarita, look, I, I said, I don't know anything at all about cars, she says, but if you want, I'll be right down. She says, oh, wait, one more thing. My sister Christina wants to talk with you. Christina is, is 17 years old. She's nine months pregnant. And she says, Christina's going into labor. So I said, oh, my gosh. So I said, look, I'll be right down. So I get down to the house, and I, I go there, and the mother greets me, the mother of the 14, and she greets me. And she says, oh, she says, Christina, she says, look, it may not be time yet. Keep walking back and forth, and the contractions may go away. So I thought, well, you know, she's done this 14 times. She should know what she's talking about. <laughs> so I said, look, I'll take the Margarita to work. I'll take the one daughter to work. And she says, I'll come back, and if she's ready, then I'll take her. So in any event, I take the one daughter to work, then come back, and then the mother looks at me and she says, nope, she's ready. She says, I need to stay here with the kids. You have to take her. So I tried to race through the tapes in my background and said, now, where in the seminary did they ever prepare me for this experience? <laughs> but God didn't ever ask me, you know, didn't ever ask if I wanted to go through this process, but I said, well, here we go, Lord. So I said, look, Christina, get in the car, and I got her all in the car, and then, you know, starts the car up, and you know, she looks at me and she goes, three minutes, Danielle, three minutes. I'm like, what three minutes? So she says, the contractions are three minutes apart. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this amniotic sac's going to break open and there's going to be kid and umbilical cord all over the place. And I was like, oh, geez. So I just kind of quick rush her to the hospital. 
get her to the hospital. And then I just say, look, Christina, just keep breathing deeply, you know. I kind of was just saying, just calm down, you know. And so she began to calm down a little bit, and then this nurse came in. She goes, who are you? And so I thought maybe father might not be the best way to start that. <laughs> so I, I hold Christina's hand, and, and I sit there. One hour went by, two hours, three hours went by. And finally I said, you know, look, Christina, um, like, how long does this usually take? <laughs> so I said, look, uh, no offense, but I've got to give my first funeral homily tomorrow, and I really don't know what to say. And it's of a 13-year-old who actually committed suicide, and he had one child already and another on his way. It's very tragic. So I said, I don't know how to preach at this funeral, yet alone at this type of funeral. So here's the situation. I'm holding Christina's hand like this, and I said, Christina, just, just hold on. I'm going to just make a phone call here and call a friend and see if I can get some advice. So I'm talking on the other line with a friend of mine who's done this funeral homily. And in the midst of this, this conversation, she starts erupting into the background again. And she starts you know, going into these contractions and screaming and yelling. And so my friend on the other line goes, what's going on back there? And so I said, you know, just another day at a Hispanic parish here. I'm just helping give birth to a baby. You know, and, but if you can picture this event that that you had on the one hand this hope for life going on on the one hand literally, and the other this experience of death on the other. But out of this, this new life was born, and this is a true story that they actually named the child Krista, a little Christ. And so that's my, my reflections really on the spirituality of the immigrant and the theology of migration is really how do we think about the life of Christ in the midst of the context of death? This is the challenge I think that we face in immigration today. So what I'd like to do is maybe another way of saying that is how do we begin to think about God from the perspective of the immigrant? You know, uh, I think that the the, the challenge here, or what I've been trying to do is on the one hand look at the immigrant experience with this hand, and then look at the text of the scriptures on the other. And how do we do a sort of a mutual hermeneutic, a hermeneutical circle, if you will, of saying how does a deeper understanding of the immigrant experience give us a new way of reading the scriptures, but how does a deeper understanding of the scriptures give us a new way of interpreting what's happening in immigration today? So another way of saying it is how do we think about God from the perspective of the immigrant? So three questions that we could develop from this one, I'd like to put this in a little bit of a bilingual context, and that would be a pregunta pastoral, so our, our pastoral question, and that is, how do we facilitate outreach and evangelization of immigrants in the way that helps heal and empower them for mission? So not just how do we enable immigrants to become passive recipients of the church, if you will, but how do we empower them as the people of God to realize their own sense of mission? This is one question that I have. The second is un, un problema pastoral. That's a pastoral problem. What do we do when the current programs and structures in our parishes and ministries aren't working? And I really come out of my own experience on this because even though I've worked in different settings with immigrants, I've also recognized that some of them weren't working very well at all. And the structures were not actually helping that empowerment process. They might be fulfilling some obligations. They might be going through some religious rituals. But there was not that sort of concordia that we read about today where people were alive and empowered and really had a sense of saying, this is what we're about and this is where we're called to go. 
The third would be to say prototipo pastoral. That is, what can we learn from those immigrant communities of faith that are flourishing and thriving? And so in the course of my reflection, I remember meeting an immigrant community in Southern California called the Valley Missionary Program. And the quality of the people, the sense of a liberated spirit and a generosity which they had, their real desire for holiness, their desire to be missionaries and to proclaim the gospel was something that always made a deep impression on me. And to give testimony to a God of life in the midst of very adverse circumstances to me was very inspiring. And so to see that, I wanted to reflect on what were some of the reasons why these, this community was thriving so well. Uh, th that This I get into a lot more detail in a book called Border of Death, Valley of Life, uh, which really kind of reflects on this community and what it's about. So I'm going to share with you some reflections of that today. What I'd like to do is first talk about the context of the immigration debate today in this, uh, this presentation. Secondly, to talk about the spirituality of the immigrants. And thirdly, a theology of migration. So these are the three things I'd like to accomplish. And then open it up and have some time for conversation and reflection together about this, this important issue. The first is, how do we understand what's going on in this process of immigration? There's a lot of different approaches that people have in this debate. Uh, we can look at Lou Dobbs or the O'Reilly factor. Uh, we can look at a lot of modern media today. And to be honest, those are probably the worst ways to look at the immigration debate because they tend to be very myopic and they tend to be very truncated in their perspective. So they go for the scandal, the sensationalistic, the argumentative, the stuff that's going to stir up the most waters. This is just the way the media is working today. So. The, the issues of the stereotypes come up strongly through these media images. I think that there's often a sense that they're a drain on the local economy, you know, that they're actually are kind of like leeches that are just sort of taking away all the resources and, and basically feeding on the system. The second is that they really don't pay taxes. You know, the, these are all arguments that have also been sort of undermined and undone. But, they, you know, the, the perception in a lot of these places is that they're just a threat to the local the local social structures here and that they really are sort of taking but they're not contributing. That they're a burden on the local infrastructure in terms of the education, in terms of the health care, in terms of uh, many other social services, that they have big families and therefore they end up costing a lot of money. Dobbs, that they're taking away, Lou Dobbs says they're taking away American jobs, uh, which is kind of an interesting perspective. Uh, Chris Simcox, one of the leaders of the Minutemen with the Vigilante groups, uh, basically it says that, that through immigration we're allowing terrorists into this country, uh, even though in 911 there were no terrorists that came in through illegally, they came in legally. Um, there was of the 60, that some that they identified you know, as being part of the whole plot, there was one that came in through the northern border, through Canada, but that's not the border that we seem to be most focused on. So a lot of confusion about Terrorism, immigration, drugs seem to all be fusing into one sort of bad mix. And I think that's part of the problem. One of the better perspectives, I think, was Pat Buchanan. Uh, these were his exact words. He says, the problem with immigrants today is they're taking away Native American culture. <laughs> so, these are his words, not mine. So, so any event, I think that th these are some of the stereotypes that are out there. And as Christians, we look at these and we say... 
how do we think about Christ? How do we think about God in this context? Now, I think that it is fair to listen to all the voices in the immigration debate. And in various occasions, I've had a chance to not only live down on the Mexican-American border, but also to, to, to really talk to a lot of the different people, players in this immigration debate. I can remember talking to the coyote smugglers who try to bring people across the border and looked at things from their angle. Talked to the vigilante groups like Chris Simcox and others and simply didn't try to change them, convert them. Not that I would be against that, but I, I really wanted to just first understand what their positions were. I talked to the educational leaders, congressmen, uh, the Border Patrol agents, I've worked on a number of times with the Border Patrol agents that have gone out with them on their, their different uh, runs and the, even in their helicopters. They've been kind enough to bring me out in their helicopters and to work with them very, very closely. But most of all, I've been working with the migrants themselves. And as uh, an academic, I guess, listening to these voices, I think I have to say quite clearly and honestly, this is a very complex conversation. And that each person in this debate has a truth to defend and has a valid claim. And so whatever we think about immigration, I think the first step is we have to say that there are valid points being made on all sides of the border. If I can kind of sum it up a little bit, the Minutemen and the vigilantes are saying we need secure borders, that administering a country cannot be done well if people are kind of coming through without documents. The terrorists, ours, and national security people are basically trying to say, what do we do in light of 911? How do we how do we basically protect our borders uh, in light of what happened back then? And so I think there are legitimate concerns about national security. The Border Patrol is looking at how to do border enforcement, how to carry out the legislation that a country has legitimate reasons to enact. The political reader, leaders are, are also making a, an argument in terms of national stability, uh, that we can't simply open up our borders to everyone and just let everybody in who has a need. So there are sort of legitimate questions about how we sustain a country and how we provide national stability. Corporations and business leaders are very much interested in competing in a global marketplace that has become very, very um, challenging. And so they're interested in cheap labor that enables them to produce their goods and services at a, at a profit so that they can sustain uh, competitive nature in the global economy. The coyote smugglers are looking around and say, we don't have any jobs that are available to us, so we want to find some way in which we can begin to have some sort of a decent income. The education and health and public services are looking at budget limits, and they're saying that with a lot of these big families who are coming to school, who have health care needs, who are sometimes even using the emergency room as their primary health care provider, uh, that, that is putting a lot of, uh, again, taxing burdens on the local infrastructure that, that indeed does raise the question of how do we put limits on this. The immigrant advocacy groups are trying to look at how the immigrant is being exploited and abused in this whole process and are trying to advocate more for immigrant and human rights. And lastly, most of the immigrants, admitting that there are 2% that are probably that are involved with drugs and criminal activity, and certainly a category of that could be involved in terrorist activity, uh, there is the question of work. That immigrants themselves, 98% of the people, 
are just looking for a job. They're coming here not because they want to stay, not because they're interested in, in being an American even, but because their families are hungry and they want to work. So that's why most people come. It's because of economic need. So again, I think it's fair to look at this situation and say this situation of immigration is very, very complex. The question that comes up, though, is how do we sort out this complexity and what resources does our Christian tradition provide so that we can begin to reflect out of this and say, what does it mean to be a faithful Christian in the context of this social challenge? When we do that, I think we're brought to the border not only of the United States and Mexico, but we're brought to the borders between natural law and civil law, between human insecurity and national security, and between citizenship and discipleship. And that's why this is such a challenging issue, because we are really on the border between both of those. And we're trying to figure out what does it mean to be an American and a Christian? What does it mean to be uh, you know, able to respond to human need, but also sort of be reflective about issues of the nation? Uh, how do we respond ultimately to the call of Christ in the midst of the challenges of today? Well, what I'd like to do is sort this out a little bit by looking at three theological categories that I think are significant for us as Christians. The first would be what Ignacio Elio Coria says. He's a theologian from El Salvador you may be familiar with, was murdered in the late 80s by death squads in El Salvador. But he had a notion of the crucified peoples. So he said that as we do theological reflection, we need to start from the perspective of those who are being crucified today. So pay attention to those who are most vulnerable, was what he would say. The second thing is saying that there are economic variables, there are social variables, there are cultural variables, there are kind of many other aspects of this immigration debate that need to be looked at. But let's first of all look at the primacy of life. The fact that thousands and thousands of people have died since 1994 crossing the border in the deserts of the southwest and in the canals merits substantial reflection of saying that there is an issue of life which should be at the forefront of our consciousness that is being relegated to the margins, if at all. So how do we think about the primacy of life in the midst of this challenge of death? And then the third is, amongst the immigrants themselves, what are the contours of a spirituality that emerge? How do we listen to the deeper dimension of their lives? And that is what's going on inside their heart and soul. So while, while there have been a lot of fine studies done about immigration from a socioeconomic and political perspective, what's been missing is saying what's happening in the heart and soul of the immigrant. And this is what many of you are training for, that you will be in congregations and you'll be ministering with people that, in the end, you want to know what's happening inside. You want to know what the concordia is. You want to know where the discordia is, too. You know, you, you want to know really what is happening inside the immigrants. So how do we, how do we listen to God's presence uh, from those deeper places within the human soul? This is what I'm interested in, in most of all, is the sort, of, sort of the inner aspect of the immigrant, if you will, especially in, in the midst of the social aspects that they're living in. So as we think about that spirituality, spirituality is one of these words which so many people are interested in, but it becomes a very difficult issue to define. Uh, 
it's uh, one of those things that says everything but can say nothing. Uh, but I want to start with a working definition. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but among the students I teach today, among the younger students, they often say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. You know, I think this is one of our postmodern challenges, is people think like religion is bad, spirituality is good. And I think in the best sense, they recognize that there has to be some sort of authenticity. There has to be some sort of a, an interiorization of the beliefs that we share as Christian communities. But there's sometimes a naivete as well about, you know, that that can be done without the help of a religion that really helps call us to conversion, to challenge even a subjectivism that can be a, its own form of enslavement. So I think that, that spirituality connected to a religion in its best sense deals with this. It's how do people within their particular cultural context experience, understand, and enact a relationship with God and community. So there's a number of different parts of this that I think we can expand on, but in particular, I wanted to say that to really respond to the needs of the immigrant really requires a deep attentiveness and a listening to what their wounds, struggles, suffering, needs, and challenges are. Because we may leave Concordia Seminary, we may leave the University of Notre Dame, as graduates, as seminarians, as ministers, and have the best medicine in the world. But if it doesn't respond to the sicknesses that people have, then it's likely that it will be of little use. And so I think finding this critical correlation between the needs of the people and the messages that we're entrusted to bring, uh, and also that our ministry has become something of a mutual interaction between a life-giving God that it's not just us who is bringing the goods to the immigrants, but it's the immigrants as well who are challenging us to think about God in a new way and bring a redemptive presence with them. One passage that I would really like to sort of highlight in this, in my experience, is that I remember when I had to give my job talk at the university, and very nerve-wracking experience. You know, those of you who've gone through it, you know what this is like. And I remember giving this, this very, very moving presentation on immigration and theology. Very, very moving. But at the end of this, one senior professor goes, well, that, okay, that's fine. He says, but really, what does immigration have to do with theology anyways? And I was, you know, was about to say, well, on the surface, nothing. On the surface, there doesn't seem to be any connection at all. But as we look at the one criteria that we have in the New Testament for judgment, it's a judgment of the nations in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. And we know the passage. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to see me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was estranged, and you welcomed me. As we think about that as sort of a a resume of the immigrant, if you will, the crucified peoples of today, hungry in their homelands, sick in, in crossing the deserts after sometimes having to even drink their own urine, naked after being robbed at gunpoint by bandito gangs, imprisoned in detention centers, uh, immigration detention centers, estranged uh, if they get here. Uh, and I think that all of that together names the immigrant experience. And so 
it's not just, as Lydia Tomasi would say, it's not just that the church saves the immigrant, but if we think about Christ's presence as well within the immigrant, it's also that the immigrant saves the church. And I think if we allow ourselves to enter into relationships with them with a sense of mutuality, and as we know in ministry, often we receive much more than we give, I think we find ourselves redemptively challenged by, by recognizing that among the poorest of the world, we find the saving message of the gospel. So among this definition, what I would like to, to look at are just four parts. One is the cultural immigration background that many immigrants go through. The second is the spiritual experience that they encounter, particularly on this one retreat where I worked with them in Southern California of this Valley Missionary Program. And that, more properly speaking, is, is the conversion experience. For many of them, an initial conversion experience. I don't know in within the Missouri Synod in this Lutheran tradition, where you, how you think about conversion, but I know from my perspective, uh, I know that there is uh, an appreciation both for the initial conversion experience, but also for the ongoing conversion experience. So two dimensions, I think, that initial conversion is very significant, which is something that often happens on this retreat, but it also facilitates sort of ongoing reflection about what conversion means. The third part is the understanding of the experience, and that is how do these immigrants think about who Jesus is as a result of that experience. And the fourth part is a response to that experience, which is really commissioned. So these four C's, if you will, context, conversion, Christ, commission, I think frame a reflection on theology and migration and the journey of the immigrant. As we look at the context of the immigrant, what I'd like to do is just play for you a piece of the video that we finished up called Dying to Live. And we finished it up just a few months ago, and we, we found it to be a very helpful tool to talk about immigration. We found that in the immigration debate, there is a spectrum of perspectives. 10% on either side, on left and right, generally have their minds made up. 80% are in the middle trying to sort this out. And we felt that we didn't really want to polemicize it in a Fox News sort of way. So we said, let's give hearing to all the people in this debate. Let's focus on that middle conversation. But what we want to bring to the forefront is the human face of the migrant and the face of Christ in the migrant. So what I'd like to do is just show you one section of that video. We have a few here if you would like to, uh, you know, if you're interested in them. Uh, but they're, they're here in the front. And But we'll show you just one piece from... A, a photographer from, from the LA Times did a photo series called the uh, Bound to El Norte. So I'd like to just show you a piece of that, which gives you, I think, a good view of what the journey of the immigrant is like and what the context is like. For some migrants, the road north starts deep in Central America. Their first destination is the southern border of Mexico. From there, they make their way up to one of the towns near the border with the United States. These small towns have become staging areas for migrants as they prepare for their trek into the well, I think that just gives you a little bit of an introduction, I think, to the, the way of the immigrant and the journey of the immigrant. And over the years, as I've had a chance to go out into the deserts and into the mountains and into the detention centers, and to these other places, I've really tried to probe a little more deeply about what is it like when you walk across the desert 
and you sometimes you even look death in the face. What does God look like to you? And what would you say to the President of the United States if you had 15 minutes? Or sometimes I even ask them, what would you say to God if you could see God face to face and talk to him? And so their, their answers are rather striking, sometimes surprising in their baldness and in their honesty and their sincerity. And what I've found that as we look at this immigration context, one of the things that's a common thread that immigrants often bring up is that they first experience in this setting a feeling of marginalization, that there is a feeling of being on the outs politically, socially, economically, culturally, linguistically, and other ways. So there is just this sense of just being separated. The second piece that often comes up, and some say, you know, look, I, I sometimes feel like I'm no one to anyone. And there's a sense of, of this deep inner loneliness. A lot of them have to separate from their families, from their wives, from their children. And as I was working in some of these villages in rural Mexico, they would literally empty out of men for eight to ten months out of the year. So you'd have villages of just women and children, and then you'd have the men up in the United States. And so some of the men, when they come up here, they'd say, you know, it, sometimes, you know, I just work in the fields and I just keep working, working, working because it's just too painful to think about, you know, what I've left behind. You know, and certainly migrants themselves don't have a monopoly on the issue of loneliness, but it is a very deep experience in the heart of many of them of just feeling disconnected. And does anybody know me? Does anybody care? Uh, does anybody have any regard for who I am? Or am I just sort of a a worker in this big economic machine without heart or feeling, without dignity, without any sense of respect that people use, and if I get hurt, abused, and will be discarded. Because migrants are 80% more likely to die in the workplace than the average American. And a lot of times people say, aren't migrants taking away American jobs? But in point of fact, migrants, especially Mexican migrants who are the majority, are doing jobs that nobody else wants. So what's happening is that a lot of these migrants, you know, end up feeling like they are just used and discarded if anything happens to them. So the loneliness runs deep, but as does the sense of meaninglessness, you know, that some of them just feel this sense of, of just being rejected. And I know one migrant said to me, he's like, you know, I, I don't know, sometimes I feel like, you know, life is just about work all the time. I'm just working to survive and I'm just barely keeping my head above water. And he said, sometimes, he says, it's not the journey across the desert, which is really difficult. He says, I've gone through the deserts and sweated like crazy. I've gone up into the mountains and almost froze to death. He says, I've gone without food. I've run out of water. He says, I've stowed away in the baggage compartments of buses. He says, but that's not the worst part. He says, the worst part is when you come to this country and people treat you like you're a dog, like you're the lowest form of life on earth. He says, that's the worst when you're indignant, when, you're, when your human dignity is so insulted that you feel like you're not even a human being. This is the journey of the immigrant that a lot of them experience. And as we look at this context, we ask, how do we begin to interpret this theologically? How do we begin to view this as ministers, as theologians, as Christians? Again, barring on Ignacio de Curie, I think what we could say is that this is a way of the cross, that among the immigrants today, there is a sense that these are the crucified peoples of today. Certainly don't have a monopoly on suffering, but in many ways experience a social crucifixion and being separated from their families, a political crucifixion and being branded as illegal aliens, an economic crucifixion in their, in their poverty, 
and sometimes a psychological crucifixion uh, in their sense of loneliness. And, lamentablemente, as they would say regretfully, that sometimes they even experience a religious crucifixion when they go to the churches and they feel that they're not welcomed. So they feel all they hear is, you've got to learn English, and that's it. And I agree. I think migrants should learn English. But I think we need to take time to do that. But if it's not a welcoming community that they feel like they're not even accepted by the church. And then some, also the way of the, across the desert is an actual crucifixion. Next to being nailed to pieces of wood, I'm not sure there is a more painful way to die than go through the long process of heat stroke, dehydration that migrants go through. And to go to some of these cemeteries, which is brought out in, in our film, but to go to some of these cemeteries where they live, where they're, where they're buried, a lot of times they just say John Doe, Jane Doe, John Doe. Even one time they even spelled John Doe wrong. You know, they, they had that little regard for them and they literally put them next to a garbage dump at the edge of a seminary. So they're marginalized in life, even in their burial, they're marginalized in death. So I think that this is a journey for a lot of them and I think that it's nothing short of what we would see as a crucifixion. This is the context. Question is, where do we? Where is the, the power of life, the dimensions of faith, the good news of the gospel for these people? In my experience, there are three dimensions of this that came out. One was this retreat experience that they have, which really was a conversion event for most of them. And I have to say that for a lot of these immigrants, they they already had a, sort of a traditional or conventional faith that was already there. We could say that in Mexico, which is traditionally Catholic in nature, I think that there, uh, or at least in the evangelization process, there was a strong kind of Christian Catholic root system. But that doesn't necessarily mean that this was sort of a, a very lively or active faith. You know, sometimes it's like a credit card that's not been activated yet. You know, I mean, the whole evangelization process, or the new evangelization process, which we tend to emphasize in my tradition, uh, it's not a matter of introducing Christ for the first time, but rediscovering who Christ is in a very unique and personal way. So this retreat experience was an opportunity to deepen that conversion process or for the first time go through it. The scripture was a way of interpreting that conversion process or encountering the word. The commission was a sense of being empowered to go forth in their spirituality. So again, what I'd like to just look at here briefly, because I do want to spend some time talking more about this, is go through a few of these pieces here and looking at this, again, this hermeneutical circle, this critical correlation between the context of their lives and the text of the gospel and how these two mutually enrich each other. So amidst the marginalization experience, one of the things that was striking about this retreat experience, and it has some connections with other spiritual movements like Corsio and others, but what was striking was that it really did create an alternative world for these immigrants. It created a setting where these immigrants for the first time could actually begin to feel human. The conversion process of many of them was not just believing in God, but also believing in themselves for the first time. You know, it was rather striking. But they had these opening ceremonies where if you can imagine what it's like being, getting all these messages of like you're always inferior, you're poor, you're brown, you're, you know, you're not worth anything on the outside. But they come into a setting where as soon as you enter the door, there's music, festive music playing, that people clap when you walk through the door, that there's a whole greeting line to welcome you, that as soon as you sit down, 
that they have food prepared for you, that someone takes your luggage and takes it to, to a, uh, another place, uh, that, they, that it's tremendous, a tremendous hospitality and welcome. And so it's very disorienting, disorienting because the world that most of them have known is not this world. So these opening ceremonies and these very festive meals that they have uh, sort of provide them another way of looking and experiencing the world. And what happens, I think, is that the, the image of God that begins to come through is not this sort of policing God or this uh, electric fence God where if you step out of line, you're going to get zapped, which some have, but there is this whole notion of the banquet host, that the God who welcomes them to table, the foretaste of the kingdom in very practical terms, that those who have been hungry are suddenly welcomed to a festive banquet. It's amazing to experience. And as we know, as we do our exegesis, we see that some say that what really sent Jesus to the cross the fastest was his table fellowship. What was the fact that he actually used to invite sinners, the outcasts, the marginalized to the table, and that's what scandalized people the most. So the table fellowship was one of the most radical uh, events of Jesus' proclamation of the gospel, and some that others couldn't handle, that these people were welcomed and they shared in the same dignity as the disciples and others. So Jesus is a banquet host, and the part of that is just the hospitality that then becomes the hallmark of their spirituality. So you can see from marginalization to hospitality, uh, these are, this is the, the framework, I think, out of which this takes place. And in the middle, it's the encounter with the word that transforms their lives. In the midst of the loneliness, there is a, a sense of, of a, the blessed sacrament, very strong in the Catholic tradition. Uh, and what they have is the, the manianitas. And there's a whole sense of God coming to them in a personal way. That one time they're in, they're in these the retreat setting. And they're told that there's somebody who waits for them, who's been sacrificing for them, who wants to meet them. And what they do is they don't know who it is. There's many surprises that are part of this retreat. But finally, they're led to this context and this setting where they have a place to meet Christ uh, and to encounter Christ in the Word, and in my tradition, also a sacramental tradition, to, to meet Christ in Word and sacrament. And what's very powerful in this is that that you really begin to hear them pour forth from the sincerity of their soul what they actually experience. And you just are witness to this. You see what's happening. You see what pours out of these folks. They also have what's interesting, what they have this Manyanitas exercise, which is called the Little Tomorrows. And the, the Manyanitas exercise is that, you know, they're told that they're supposed to get up at, you know, they're, they're woken up at like 5 in the morning. You know, they just kind of get out of bed and they say, wake up, wake up, wake up. And they're like, who is it? What is it? And they say, well, we have to sing Mañanitas to, you know, Father Daniel. You know, and you're like, oh, gosh, I don't know who Father Daniel is, but gosh, why are they getting us up so early? You know, and the first time I made this retreat, I was like, what is going on here? Well, in any event, they walk through the doors of this, you know, this room. And to their surprise, they have a whole festive party there with their relatives who have come from even hundreds of miles away to sing Mañanitas to them. And what's interesting is that they have a, a way of, uh, through flower, through song, through music, they have a way of just welcoming in this long line, uh, I think, of, of festive things. I always think that when, when I die, through the grace of God, walking through the, the other side of this life into the next, that 
that's what it will be like. At funerals, sometimes this is the image I use, is that suddenly when those doors are open, we will see all the people that have been part of our lives throughout our history, and they'll welcome us into one big festive event you know, as we enter fully into the kingdom of God. And I think that here and now, they experience that. And it's, it is a transformative experience for me. I know when I experienced it, it was very powerful. But there also is a sense out of that that, that the God who comes to them is in John's gospel, you know, I no longer call you slaves. I no longer just call you servants and workers, but I call you friends. So the whole notion of friendship becomes very powerful. And so therefore, faith is very much grounded on this friendship, that the faith that they experience very much emerges out of this. So from the loneliness, through the friendship, faith becomes this profound experience of trust in a God who saves them. In the meaninglessness, in the end, they have a commission service where they, again, very festive meals, and at the end of one of them, they receive a special blessing that basically says, with the love you have received, go forth and proclaim that love. So it it transforms a lot of their sense of where we're just workers, slaves, migrants, that that they sense it, but but it transforms their sense of being immigrants to being missionaries. It's kind of a spiritual challenge, if you will. And in the midst of that, it it redefines what it means to be servant when they, they also have a foot-washing experience, you know, uh, strong sense of ritual. I know at, a, at in my tradition when we do the foot washing service, uh, sometimes it seems to be something so simple, but it can be so transformative uh, to really redefine our lives ultimately as servants. And that that God, Jesus, God in Jesus did this is something that can totally reshape the imagination and one's orientation to the world. But out of that meaninglessness, to discover a sense of mission is what leads to the empowerment. So another way of saying that is that if the way of the immigrant is the way of the cross, the experience on the retreat is an experience of resurrection, which really happens because of an encounter with the word and also through an encounter with sacrament. And as a Catholic theologian, I would understand sacrament in two senses. One is sacraments in terms of the major ones like baptism and Eucharist, but also the sacramentals of daily life where God comes to us through the details of people who are so concerned and caring about our lives, that even in the offering of a cup of coffee, a smile, a hug, an abrazo, whatever it may be, that there's a way in which God comes to us through our our world and through the, the lives of others. So to sum that up, basically the experience of the immigrant and the spirituality of immigration in this process is a movement from death to life, is an experience of an entrance into the Paschal Mystery. So to me, that's where the challenge is, is how do we think about, about a God of life in the context of death and how do the immigrants help reveal that to us? So theologically, we can also put these into other categories about uh, enculturation. How does the gospel become rooted within a particular setting? Community, how do we think about church uh, in the context of a community of faith? And ultimately, evangelization. Uh, what does it mean to proclaim the gospel to the good news and the good as good news to those who suffer in our world today?